You're listening to a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. We hope you'll find it to be spiritually edifying. Let us open our Bibles together this afternoon. We turn to the book of Exodus in the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 19. Exodus 19, of course, coming just before the giving of the law, which is given in a certain context. And as you listen to Exodus 19, you'll notice the context is most dramatic and surprising. The third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord God called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast, may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning with a thick cloud over the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top 
of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up Mount Sinai because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not face or force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. Thus far, our Old Testament reading, let's turn to the Gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, the verses 15 to 20. If your brother sins against you, the Lord Jesus says, go and show him his fault, just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. And whatever you lose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about Anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three come together in my name, there am I with them. I preached to you this afternoon from the word of our God about what is revealed in, summarized in question and answer 85 of the Heidelberg Catechism, Lord's Day 31. How is the kingdom of heaven closed? and opened by church discipline. According to the command of Christ, people who call themselves Christians but show themselves to be unchristian in doctrine or life are first repeatedly admonished in a brotherly manner. If they do not give up their errors or wickedness, they are reported to the church, that is, to the elders. If they do not heed also their admonitions, they are forbidden the use of the sacraments And they are excluded by the elders from the Christian congregation and by God himself from the kingdom of Christ. They are again received as members of Christ and of the church when they promise and show real amendment. Beloved congregation of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ, do you see what I see? I spy with my little eye something green. What is it? Have you ever played that game as a child? It's a guessing game. It challenges you to identify the object or person that someone else sees. And if you do, you then get a turn to try to stump the others who are playing with you. But now let's raise the stakes considerably. Do you ever wonder 
what God sees. We know He sees everything. We know He's high and exalted as the prophet Isaiah tells us. So, so what does He see? And in particular, what does God see when He looks down upon this earth which He has made and that He happens to uphold every day, every hour, every moment? Well, I'm sure that on one level he sees what the astronauts see and what you and I, in a way, can see as well as if we look at Google Earth. He sees this beautiful blue and white ball floating around in space. He sees this magnificent planet rotating on its axis and spinning around in its orbit. And yes, and that's not all that he sees. For as he looks closer, he sees a lot more. And I would say to you that a lot of what he sees is not pretty. He sees the pollution that covers so much in so many cities. He sees ugly sores where the landscape has been stripped bare of its trees and foliage. He sees concrete covering more and more of the earth. He sees garbage and ugliness. Sometimes I would think that it must hurt God to look at what man has done to his marvelous creation. But then he also sees more. He he sees man, the crowning achievement of his creation, And often he must grimace and frown. So much of mankind ignores him. And as for those who do not, they often distort him and make him out to be what he is not. And then there are those who live their lives in direct violation of all that he stands for. They're violent, greedy, immoral, selfish, self-centered, myopic, materialistic, cruel. What pain must this not cause him? And yet, thankfully, all is not lost. For on this disfigured planet, with its so many dead in sin people, he also sees those whom he has called to salvation. God sees his church. He sees his people who believe in him, who call upon him, who worship him, and who confess his name. And it makes his heart glad. But it also concerns him. For he knows that his church is always under attack. There are so many external forces arrayed against her, led by the world and the devil, and at the same time she is assaulted from within. For there is the weakness and the proneness of the flesh to sin as well as to fall. Well now, in such a situation, what does God do? He gives to his church two keys. Two keys for a better kingdom and a better future. The first key is, as we saw last time, the proclamation of the gospel of grace. 
And by it, his church announces to all and everyone that through faith in Jesus Christ, there is forgiveness for sins. And there's access into God's eternal kingdom. You see, God gives the first key to his church to keep her on course, to keep her focused, to keep her in fellowship with himself and with all of his promises. But that's not all, for God also gives to his church a second key. It's sometimes called the key of Peter or the apostles, as mentioned in Matthew chapter 18. It's the key of the church of all ages. It's the key of church discipline. And its purpose is to keep God's people on track and moving in the direction of God's eternal kingdom. How does it do that? What does all of that entail? I preached to you this afternoon on the following theme, the second key of the kingdom of heaven. And we'll see that it has everything to do with the holiness of the Lord, the welfare of his people, and the salvation of the sinner. Well, beloved, if the first question this afternoon is, what does God see? The second question may well be, what does God want? What kind of people is it that God wants? And of course, there's a host of possible answers to that question today. There are many Christians who would say that God wants a happy, upbeat, joyful people. And in saying that and insisting on it, they are not wrong. Joy is, even in difficult circumstances, to be one of the hallmarks of God's people. After all, the Apostle Paul, you may remember, commands us, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. So joy is to be one of the distinguishing features of the people of God. But there's more. God not only wants a joyful people, you can also say God wants a believing people. A people who trust Him. Who take Him at His word. A people who who take His promises seriously. And of course we see that everywhere in Scripture. Scripture says that faith and belief are the basics and the foundation stones of the Christian life. Without faith, you will not see God. God wants a believing, joyful people. But you can also add God wants a courageous people. He doesn't want a people who run and hide at the first sign of trouble or who collapse with the first ounce of pressure. No, he wants a people who who know how to persevere, how to resist, how to fight back, how to discern, how to stand firm. Hebrews 11 is filled with those kinds of people. And God wants a church full of them. So God's looking for us or among us for joy and faith and courage 
And of course, you can add more. God wants a thankful people. He doesn't want a murmuring people. God wants a shining people who shed their light abroad. God wants a humble people, not a proud people. God wants a caring people, not an indifferent or a hard-hearted people. The list goes on and on. But you know, in that list, there's often one quality that's overlooked. Can you guess what it might be? On the basis of reading Exodus 19, can you guess what it might be? You know, Exodus 19 is one of those glorious chapters of the Scriptures. It's a chapter about beginnings, the beginnings of Israel as a nation, as a covenant community, as a dedicated people to God. And in addition, it describes this wonderful interaction between God and Moses and the people. And you know, it's filled with the drama of redemption, of divine speech and thunder and lightning and a thick cloud and a loud trumpet blast. Yes, and in that chapter, God also says to his people, what kind of people he expects Israel to be. Look at verse 6. Although the whole earth is mine, you are to be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God expects his people to be a holy people. And to make this crystal clear, you'll notice he stipulates a number of things that have to do with being a holy people. First, they have to consecrate themselves by washing themselves, abstaining from sexual relations, getting ready for the third day. Second, they're to keep their distance. They're not allowed to touch the mountain or go near it until they hear the ram's horn or the shofar. And third, they are to appear before God as a special people. And that includes the priests as well. So what kind of people does God want here in Exodus 19? He says he wants a different kind of people. He doesn't want the kind of people he sees everywhere else on the face of the earth. He doesn't want the kind of people who chart their own course, go their own way, set their own agenda. Now he says his people have to be holy. Now why do they have to be holy? Because he is a holy God. God wants his people to be a reflection, as it were, of himself. Listen to what he says in Leviticus 11.44. I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourselves and be holy because I am holy. And Leviticus 11.45, I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt to be your God. Therefore, be holy because I am holy. 
And just in case you thought that's only Old Testament language and it's kind of limited to that, think of 1 Peter chapter 1. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires you had when you lived in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all that you do. For it's written, be holy because I am holy. You know, it's kind of a biblical refrain. Something, in other words, that's supposed to be carved on our hearts and imprinted upon our lips. We're supposed to be holy because our God is holy. Of course, that does raise the question, what does it mean to be holy? Again, you can refer to any number of different things. It means that, of course, God is the holy other. I think with respect to God, it points to the fact that he is the incomprehensible God whose judgments are unsearchable and whose ways are beyond finding out. And it points to the fact that he is the supreme and the most high God who's filled with absolute and unchallengeable authority. And it points to the fact that he's the all-powerful God whose power is eternal and whose might is beyond comprehension. With but a word he can create. And with but another word, He can just as easily destroy. And finally, God's holiness points to his purity. In other words, in him there is no darkness, there is no sin, there is no defilement, there is no pollution, there is no contradiction. And of course, in saying that God's holiness refers to all of these qualities, I'm not saying But also God expects you and I to be incomprehensible and supreme and all-powerful. Most of those aspects are not transferable. We do not have them in common with God. But you know, there is one aspect of God's holiness that we can and must share in. And it has to do with His holiness in the sense of purity. Be holy because I am holy can also be translated be pure because I am pure. Now think about it for a moment. That in and of itself is an impossible demand. But remember, Christ Jesus our Savior has given us the other counselor and comforter And you know what he's called, of course? He's called the Holy Spirit. Not just the Spirit, but the Holy Spirit. The Holy God gives the Holy Spirit to make his people holy. That's his task. In some ways, he's to make us like God. As pure as God. You know, one day he will. If you look at the future, 
of God's people. You see a day when Scripture says God's people are going to be standing before Him dressed in the white, spotless, pure robes of redemption. All the pollution of sin is gone. But we're not there yet. And to get there, we need help. We need, as I said, the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. We also need the second key of the kingdom of heaven. We need the key of church discipline. It's an instrument, a tool of holiness. It's been given to the church by God to make us and keep us like God. Well, what is now the key of discipline? Well, in, a, in one way, beloved, you can say it, it really isn't much more than what the Lord Jesus describes for us very clearly in Matthew chapter 18. We read it together, and it's not too difficult to understand as far as procedures go. First, it describes a situation of sin. Here a brother has either sinned against you personally or he has sinned in some other way. And the result of that is that kind of action, that kind of lifestyle is that his or her soul is in danger. And second, it describes the calling that each and every one of us have as a believer. Namely, if we know this about a brother or sister, we are to confront them. Of course, that doesn't mean to confront them in anger, haughtiness, or superiority. But lovingly, humbly, patiently, carefully, the intent is to win back, not drive away. And third, it describes in this part of Scripture what may or may not happen if the brother or sister listens to you and says, Rejoice! On the other hand, if he or she refuses to listen, it says, Proceed. Proceed to do what? Proceed to call and help. One or two witnesses. And then go back again. And fourth, it describes also what's to do if a return visit with witnesses is not unfruitful, and that is tell it to the church. And the most common explanation of that is, as you saw in the Heidelberg Catechism, tell it to the elders, the office bearers. And they, in turn, will make the call as to whether or not This needs to be told to the whole congregation as well as in what fashion and at what time. And fifth, Matthew 18 also describes what to do if he or she refuses to listen even to the church as a community and to the office bearers as such. And it's this, treat him as you would a pagan and a tax collector. So that's the 
procedure of the key of church discipline. Now, I'd remind you, it's not my procedure. This is not Vischer's invention. It's not the procedure of the elders here in Langley. It's not the procedure of the church order of Dort. Now, beloved, this is the procedure of Jesus Christ, the Lord and King of the church. You know, sometimes when people in the world hear that we are a church that believes in and even practices church discipline, they are aghast. And they sputter and they fume and they say, how dare you? What gives you the right? Since when are you perfect? Who do you think you are? My beloved, such remarks shouldn't be directed at us. They should be directed at Jesus Christ. All we're doing is being faithful and following orders. And if they should point to other churches who do not insist on the application of Matthew 18 as examples for us, We need to say that such churches are just as answerable to the Savior in the final instance as we are. A church without discipline may strike you as being kind, compassionate, loving, and charitable. But Scripture says... That's a church that's living in violation of the will and the way of its master. And so, beloved, Matthew 18 isn't optional. For those who take seriously the call to be holy because God is holy, this isn't optional. And also realize... That this discipline is meant not just to honor God and his intentions for his people. But you know, it's also to safeguard the congregation. We didn't read it, but you might want to read 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Where the Apostle Paul says, A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. I'm not a cook. I don't know much about this, but I'm sure a lot of you, especially the ladies among us, understand this perfectly well. A little yeast works through the whole batch of dough. And you know, in that context, the Apostle Paul is referring to a man in the congregation who is sleeping with his father's wife or with his stepmother, if you will. And he calls such behavior sexual immorality. And furthermore, he demands that the congregation deal with this situation immediately. And how is the congregation supposed to deal with it? Well, he says in verse 5, Hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed. 
And later on in verse 11, he writes, But now I am writing you that you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler, with such a man. Do not even eat. Don't take him to McDonald's. And why should one not eat with such an obviously erring brother or sister? Because that gives the appearance as if there really isn't much wrong here at all. And in addition, it's dangerous in that it may well cause the disease, the moral disease, to spread. If one church member can sleep with his stepmother, why not the whole church? If one member can be tolerated even though he slanders or is a drunkard or a swindler, why cannot the rest of the church join in? You see, church discipline is meant to contain the sin and thereby to protect the health and the well-being and the holiness of the congregation of Jesus Christ. But you know, that's not the end of the story. For while many see church discipline as a purely negative procedure, I would say that too is a wrong impression. But what's the aim of church discipline? It's not to get rid of the sinner. It's not to brand him or her as being someone who is beyond redemption. It's not to make them the target or the recipient of angry words and terrible names and outrageous judgments. Now, the aim of church discipline is to win the back. The Lord Jesus also stresses that in Matthew 18 when, when he says that, that if he listens to you, you have won your brother over. Notice he doesn't say you've then convinced your brother. No, he uses the language of, of winning, of winning a prize. It's happy language. Celebratory language. And you may know the Lord Jesus stresses the same thing in his parable of the prodigal son. When the errant son comes home, does his father say to him, Oh, you're back, are you? Have you learned your lesson yet? What are you after now? Well, the father sees him coming. And the father runs to meet him. And embraces him. And gives him a ring and, and clothes him with new clothes and throws a huge party for him. You see, God, our God, doesn't take any joy in the death of a sinner. But he takes great joy in their repentance and return. Church discipline is meant to preserve, to bring back. To restore, to set the stage for a great party 
And you know, the Apostle Paul agrees as well. He says something else about the immoral man in 1 Corinthians 5. He says that he should be handed over to Satan so that his sinful nature may be destroyed. But then he adds these words, and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. You see, this discipline is with a view to his salvation. And isn't that true of all discipline? It's with a view to salvation. I think we need to remember that. There are times when we know that a brother or sister is living in sin. But we either pretend that we don't know about it, or we sometimes even rationalize their crooked behavior. Sometimes we're so desperate to stay on friendly terms with another brother or sister that we will even do so at the risk of their very salvation. And we refuse to confront and we refuse to say the hard truth. And we play let's pretend. And we do it all for the sake of peace. I know the cost. Do you really think that the elders in this church or the ministers in this church love to confront any of you when you go astray? You know, that's about the most difficult business, so to speak, in the world. It's the stuff of sleepless nights. I'd often say that the ministry would be the happiest calling in the world if it weren't for the discipline stuff. We don't want it. We don't like it. But we do it. And why? Because we care about your eternal salvation. Because none of us wants to stand before the Lord and have to admit that we let a brother or sister live a life of sin, a life that led them to hell without a word of warning, without any caution or any rebuke on our part. You want that on your conscience? I don't want it on mine. And you know the same goes for you. If you see a brother or sister living and playing around in sin, do not play the monkey game. Hear no evil, see no evil, speak no evil. But rather you go out of your way to confront them in a wise careful and winning manner. Something that's always stood me in great stead in my ministry throughout the years is whenever I have to confront anyone as a pastor, I always say to myself, there but for the grace of God 
do I. And then you do what you can to win them back to Christ and to His holy service. At the end of James, the letter of James, there is this verse. Whoever turns a sinner back from the air of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Something to think about. Something to pray about. Something to work with every day. Amen. This has been a sermon from the Langley Canadian Reformed Church. For more information, please visit us on the web at www.langleycanrc.org.